With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Majrita Chirimuta, a Professor of Philosophy, Assistant Professor of Philosophy, uh, in the Department of the History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Pittsburgh. And her book, Outside Color, Perceptual Science and the Puzzle of Color in Philosophy, is just out from the MIT Press. What is color? On the one hand, it seems obvious that it is a property of objects. Roses are red, violets are blue, and so on. On the other hand, even the red of a single petal of a rose differs in different lighting conditions, or when seen from different angles. The basic physical elements that make up the rose don't have colors. And surfaces that we see as having the same color, say red, do not have the same light reflectance properties. So is color instead a property of a perceptual mental state rather than of a perceived object? Or maybe it's a relation between a perceiver and an object. In Outside Color, Chirimuta defends an ontology of color that aims to capture the implicit ontological commitments of contemporary perceptual science. She argues for color adverbialism, according to which color perception is an action-guiding interaction between an organism with the appropriate visual system and the environment, and color is a property of this process. On her view, color vision is not for perceiving colors, it is for, for perceiving things, helping us to distinguish them from background and each other relative to the interests of each perceiver. By providing a fresh perspective on an old philosophical problem, outside color promises to be an influential contribution to the debate about color and about perception generally. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Majrita Chirimut, are you there? Hello, Carrie. Hi, uh, glad to have you with New Books in Philosophy. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. It's lovely to have the chance to talk. Yeah, well, it's a really, really interesting book, Outside Color. Um, you are you have a background in perceptual science, which I hope you'll tell us about in a second. Um, uh, but the whole book kind of presents a, you know, which, which in a sense a very, to me, intuitive sort of view of of color, ontology of color, derived from the perceptual science and other trends actually going on in activism in particular um, in cognitive science more generally than perceptual science. Um, so it's a, it's a really exciting opportunity to be able to talk with you um, and present this uh, position to the wider philosophical community. And um, why don't we start uh, with you telling us a little bit about yourself, um, how you came to philosophy, um, and then how you came to write uh, this book. Okay. Well, I first thought about studying philosophy when I was in high school and um, thinking about what degree to pursue as a um, as an undergraduate, because um, I'm from Britain originally, and in the UK, we choose our degree subjects um, 
before starting university. And throughout my high school career, I'd felt uh, torn between pursuing a science um, program of study or focusing more on the humanities. And um, then I discovered philosophy as a way of um, carrying out some kind of humanistic and historical interest, uh, writing essays and uh, just dwelling on ideas, um, which fits well with also having a scientific background and scientific interest. So um, I ended up at the University of Bristol doing physics and philosophy and then psychology and philosophy as my interests um, went more in the direction of the sciences of the mind. And I was always um, a, an enthusiastic philosophy undergraduate, but then I ended up doing um, perceptual science for my PhD. So I went straight from Bristol to the University of Cambridge, and I and I did my PhD in um, well, it was a a bunch of sort of related topics on human vision, where I was doing some uh, psychophysical experiments on contrast perception. So black and white, simple, stripy images and how we perceive those and um, working on computational models which um, could explain some of those empirical results in terms of um, neuronal processes in primary visual cortex. So something that seems quite far away from philosophy, but I carried on um, studying and reading philosophy and attending seminars as a side interest and then went back to philosophy as a postdoc. So I managed to get a postdoc with Ian Gold, who was then based at Monash University in Melbourne. Um, he's currently at McGill. And he had the idea that we'd, uh, the two of us would work together on colour, because uh, philosophy of colour is uh, an area of philosophy of perception which has been drawing quite strongly from the scientific literature in recent years. So this was an ideal um, route for me to take to do interdisciplinary work on philosophy of perception and science of perception. Cool. Um, so the, the book itself is uh, organized, you know, somewhat informally, I guess, um, into roughly three parts. Um, one is where you kind of introduce the problem, you um, uh, discuss a little bit the historical background of the problem in philosophy, um, some of the standard, you know, realist, anti-realist, you know, relationist accounts uh, of color mm-hmm. um, and some of the relevant, um, uh, more recent um, color science, uh, how that impacts um, this issue. Um, and then the second part, you uh, present your own account, you know, the color adverbialism and the perceptual pragmatism, which we'll, we'll get to um, later on. Um, and then you consider a bunch of, of um, objections and, and respond to those. Um, so maybe we should just start kind of from the beginning. I mean, how do you get a problem of color? Right. Um, and, you know, what are the sort of standard philosophical responses to that problem? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... One of the very basic ways into the problem is this issue of perceptual variability. Um, The way that things can appear to have quite different colors um, depending on the viewing conditions, depending on who happens to be looking at them or the states of the person looking at them, you know, whether something happens to be wrong with one's eyes that day. Uh, And in some of those cases, it's not there isn't an obvious answer to the question, well, which is the correct appearance of that object? And um, I like to think that this issue um, bothered me quite early in my life because I have this recollection of uh, looking at the ground in a playground when I was in primary school. So I would have been maybe seven or eight years old. And there was a part of the concrete that was in shadow and the part that wasn't. And I remember asking to myself, well, how does the concrete really look? Or what's the, what's the right appearance of the concrete? If you think of color as um, not just hue, but also sort of the brightness of the, um, of the light, well, then this gray sort of varies in lightness. So which is the real or the correct gray of the concrete? I remember asking myself that. <laughs> that one. And, um, and this, this uh, issue of variability 
it's a problem for the most sort of naive of naive realists. If you just think to yourself, as I guess as a child I was back then at seven or eight years, that or you just open your eyes and you just see the world and there's nothing that I as a perceiver bring to that experience of the world, then then that those questions are more troubling. But then if you um, have more sophisticated ideas and sophisticated versions of naive realism as well these kinds of variabilities aren't a problem you could say that well there there's more than one chromatic property that belongs to the concrete and different visual systems pick up on those those kinds of things can you can get around the issue so um so a lot so more work needs to be done just with variability to give you um, the problem of colour, but uh, other philosophers have run with that. In particular, um, Jonathan Cohen sort of sets that up quite nicely. Um, but when I was uh, working on this topic, I was more interested in the way that um, the philosophy of science and some of the conceptual foundations of modern science um, have generated this problem of colour. And that um, brings us to the topic of primary secondary qualities, which are as most associated with uh, 17th century, early modern theories of matter, people like Robert Boyle, John Locke, and it's there in um, work of Descartes and Galileo as well. So this idea that matter um, by itself has a bunch of primary qualities which can be described mathematically, and then these other qualities which objects appear to have when we look at them, like colours and um, Tastes when we put objects in our mouths and and um, smells um, when those occur, those aren't properties that belong to matter in the way that we experience them to have. And so then people um, who um, advocated that distinction came up with different theories of what colours and the other secondary qualities would have to be. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, if you fast forward to sort of current context, um, again, there seems something maybe naive about that 17th century setup because no one now would say, well, if a property isn't one of the basic properties of matter, then we have to be um, bothered that it's not really there in the world because we um, typically accept that there are all kinds of real properties of special sciences, sort right. of the ones that aren't just physics. So there are um, properties of biology, properties in social science, and they're not, you know, basic constituents of matter, but no one no one thinks that they're ontologically problematic. But why colour, I think, persists as troubling is that there's a whole qualitative dimension to colour. Colour is something... Um, that is very tied up with our notion of experience. I can't, um, I can't help but but associate colour with a whole range of um, experiences that I have when I open my eyes. Same with taste, a whole set of experiences that I have when I'm eating my dinner. And we don't have a science of how those kinds of properties come about. So I think that's why. Um, colour remains um, a central problem in this area of philosophy um, as a sort of as a stand-in for this wider problem of what to do with qualitative properties. Right. Um, well, let me to, just to press a little bit more on the um, the uh, what you what is called. I mean, you call it, it is called the the color contrast effect. You have actually this is one of the maybe the only philosophy book that has color plates in it, which seems mm-hmm. you know very appropriate, obviously. Um, okay. But um, among the the black and white plates, at least mm-hmm. in the book, is is one demonstrating the the um, phenomenon of of color contrast. Um, so can you the color contrast effect? Um, can right. you say you know, what that is and how that helps you show that other accounts of color um, are are not adequate. Right. So the color contrast effect 
Uh, a basic version of this is, and I think um, a lot of your listeners will have come across this, is when you take a um, two different grey backgrounds side by side. So you have a light grey background and a dark grey background. And in the centre of each of these square backgrounds, you put a mid-grey circle and depending on what background you have the circle will either appear sort of a darker grey against the light grey background or a paler grey against the uh, dark grey background so the background is having this strong impact on the colour that you perceive that same that phys- you know, the, physically the same circle to have and so this raises the question of so what's the correct viewing context for seeing that um, grey circle? Is there a, a specific shade of grey that we can unambiguously say belongs to that circle? Or is colour really some kind of um, context-dependent property? And I think um, that these kinds of situations um, do sort of give strong reason to think that colour is some kind of a relational property, which I'll say more about in a minute. But I don't think it's like a knockdown um, effect or um, by itself um, can prove too much. Because on the other hand, we have examples where um, there are different viewing contexts and it would seem natural to say well, one of those is just wrong. Um, so if you're looking at your socks in your dimly lit bedroom in the morning and you put them on and think they're the same colour and then you go outside and one looks brown and the other one looks black, you would say, oh, well, you just misperceived them earlier. So there are, you know, there are different kinds of examples that can pull you in different directions. Okay. Um, but you do, um, you do use this at least uh, in part to... Um, to get you to the difference um, that you later call the the sort of coloring in model or coloring book, sometimes coloring book model yeah. of color uh, versus your view, which is what you call coloring for model. I think this this seems to be a very basic difference that you know kind of informs the rest of the account that you give in the book could you could you say something about that distinction yeah so so one so one thing i I would um before we go on to that um i would like to say about the different um responses um so the different sort of broad brush theories that you can have and sort of going back to what the nature of the problem is so uh, another way of um saying asking what's problematic about colour is um, that we know a lot about the physics of colour, we know a lot about how light interacts with matter, we know about the different wavelengths of light and how we um, perceive the different colours in the spectrum to have um, the different wavelengths of light in the spectrum to have these different colours and at the same time we know a lot about the psychology of colour so all of these um, surround effects and a whole bunch of other phenomena that you can go into endless um, varieties of them but what's um, fitting all this together so how could we fit all this knowledge together to give us sort of one theory of colour which um which is compatible both with the physical approach and with that psychological approach. And um, my main motivation for exploring a relationist account is actually really this issue of how we can, how the physics and the psychology of colour are supposed to hang together. Mm-hmm. And I think um, relationism has the edge over um, uh, both physicalist um, theories on the one hand and uh, mentalist or anti-realist theories on the other hand because um, if you're a physicalist you'll say oh well the physical story about color that's all there is to it so physic, uh, physics tells us that um, perceived color um, should be reduced to um, spectral surface reflectance which is um, a property describing um, the way surfaces 
reflect light at different wavelengths, for example. Or if you're a mentalist, you'll say, well, the whole story is there in the neurophysiology about how the brain um, processes white light at different wavelengths. Um, but I think those are only just parts of the story and we shouldn't be tempted to just ignore the other parts. Okay, so the relationism takes a little bit of both. Right. Um, well, let me, let me then get back to the coloring in mm-hmm. versus the coloring for. Right. Um, uh, because I, I believe one of the things that you say is that the, the coloring in well, I'm not sure that I did get this right, but I think the, the coloring in model seemed to, or at least some assumption along those lines, seemed to be in the background of, of both the realist and anti-realist. Right. And, and that, um, I mean, there's a, there's a, a kind of a bundle of different assumptions right. there about color yeah. that, that grounds the, those traditional views. And you want to say, well, no, you know, that, that whole picture, you know, on non-theoretical still, um, is it, that has to be transformed into what you call the color four model. So I think that, you know, explaining that might be very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I'll say a bit about the coloring in view and, um, the other sort of rival physicalist and mentalist or anti-realist positions. So I think it's tempting to think about, um, vision as, almost on this sort of pictorial model where there's a world outside your head and your eyes are these cameras and the world is projecting images onto your eyes and then the brain has to work out what is where. And so there's this idea that the brain sort of finds out where the edges are and then there's this color visual system which colors in those edges And so if you ask yourself, well, what is color? Then you're asking yourself the question, well, what's the um, physical or um, objective property of those objects in the world, which corresponds to me perceiving sort of these different shades of red, yellow, and green, etc. And if you're a physicalist, you run with this idea and sort of look out there in our catalogue of physical properties and and you look for different candidate things. And if you're um, an anti-realist, you'll um, say, well, actually, there's nothing in the external world which corresponds to these um, different experiences of colour that we have. So really, our brain is just making something up and projecting it onto this um, ex- this vision of the external world. Um, and um, my idea in this alternative colouring, well, in 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 this chapter, is so to say, well, that whole framework of thinking about colour vision as just enabling us to. Um, try and detect colors and then this question about well if we're not really detecting any physical property maybe this is all an illusion or a projection um i'm saying there's something wrong about that setup and we should be um looking instead at the empirical science um which is describing some surprising things that color vision does so that go beyond any you know, um, armchair ideas about sort of detecting some kinds of chromatic properties or detecting some particular physical property that we can say is colour and is actually much more concerned with the way that um, colour vision is integrated with perception of all kinds of different um, features of the environment. So, um, so as I put it, colouring is for detecting objects and their edges and colouring is for seeing how far things are away. Um, Colouring is for working out um, the actual 3D contours of things. And this is an idea that um, Kathleen Aikens has um, developed in her work as well. So it's it's been around there. And I was also... um, 
introduced to it back in 2007 when I was in Montreal um, working with Ian Gold and I visited uh, Fred Kingdom's lab who and he's a vision researcher at McGill University and a lot of his uh, research is on the interactions between color vision and um, for example perception of shape and uh, stereopsis he's working on now and he has this idea about the function of color vision which um, he calls color as material. So he's saying that one of the main functions of color vision is actually um, to help you disambiguate um, changes in light reaching the eye, which are due to um, changes in material surfaces, as opposed to changes just in um, the intensity of illumination. So if you look at as a scene which is um, illuminated by by a very dappled light, say a forest floor, there's going to be a very strong um, luminance in um, luminance um, contrast signal. How does the brain know that that's not um, objects on the forest floor changing? Well, if the brain compares that to what's happening. Um, with the chromatic signal, there'll be a mismatch. And so the chromatic signal is helping the brain know what is um, going on materially. And you can say all this without assuming that colour is any particular physical properties of object. It's really about looking at the information that colour vision is um, allowing you to recover about your environment. And you can be agnostic about, you know, whether color reduces to any particular property of that environment. So I think um, you, you know, this is one of the uh, uses I think you put the color contrast effect to is to show that as that it's not really an illusion. It's it's actually that's that's the way color vision that's the way vision works by right. using this chromatic information to right. help you say, well, you know, you've got this circle. And it's got these two different backgrounds. And in order to keep track of the circle, you need to do this. Right. Yeah. Um, That's a good way of putting it. um, Well, you also, um, a a more, say, visually compelling example might be, you use the example of the the Blue Mountains outside Sydney. (laughs) Right. And uh, so this is a familiar uh, phenomenon, you know, where things that are farther away will look more diffuse in their color and and there it's it's blue because which i didn't know the eucalyptus uh chemicals or something are in the air i mean that i I didn't know that that was that that was why but um in any case i mean maybe you could explain this in terms of um the 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 uh the aid that that chromatic chromatic features or differences give us to see things like depth. I mean, this is one of the one of the issues that you raised. Right. So, so if you're if you're tied to the idea that um, color has to be for color to be um, a real property, we have to find out. You know what. Um, what kinds of things in the world um, outside us instantiate color? And is there a sort of particular physical property type um, that we can associate with color? Then um, effects like this um, bluing in the distance um, seem problematic because um, from, from a far distance, the mountains look like they're a hazy blue, but then if you get closer, um, they'll just look like, they'll just look green. So you might be tempted to say, well, that blue in the distance, that's just an illusion. That's because we're too far away to see the color of the mountains properly. Um, But then on the other hand, you can ask the question, well, what is um, color vision in this case helping us perceive? And actually it's helping us perceive the distance of the mountains. So um, typically um, in our world, things look bluer as uh, as they go further away. And also the colors become less saturated. So various vision scientists had sort of looked at um, this effect, especially the saturation effect, and seen how 
how much, to what extent people rely on this um, in making their judgments about how far away things are. And it, and it seems to be something that um, people do use. It's not just there's this correlation, but it means nothing to us. Actually, we use these color variations as what vision scientists call depth cues, just in the way that stereoptic vision um, is a depth, provides us with depth cues. Okay, so speaking of, of uses, I mean, in the, in the I think, Chapter 5, you, yeah. you introduce the idea of perceptual pragmatism, um, where uh, you say that, um, that color vision is, is both um, active and um, interest-relative. Right. Um, so maybe you could explain what, you, what you're getting at with perceptual pragmatism. Yeah, so... Um, the basic idea that I introduced in the previous chapter with the coloring in and coloring for alternative was that we should stop thinking about color vision as aiming to match inner color visual experiences to sort of candidate external properties. And then sort of building from this idea um, to say, well, color vision um, is trying to guide activity. We have perceptual systems in order to guide our activities. And, and I'm talking not just about humans, but all kinds of animals which have color visual systems. And so what we should do is um, go about and try and find out more about what those activities are. And... Um, Looking across the animal kingdom, we know that different species have quite different kinds of color visual systems, and they seem to be um, tied to the different um, pursuits that those animals are involved with. Um, sometimes it's you know, signaling um, amongst conspecifics, sometimes it's finding food, sometimes it's navigation. So that's what I mean by the interest relativity of color vision. Um, if you look across the animal kingdom, you'll see, well, there's so many different ways you can build a color visual systems. We get explanations for why different species have those, the systems that they do by looking at the activities that they're performing and um, how this links into pragmatism. Well, at the heart of American pragmatism, um, in the work of William James, say, there's this criticism of the correspondence model of truth, the idea that a statement is true just if it matches up with states of affairs in the external mind-independent world. And um, what I call perceptual pragmatism is the um, analogue of this, uh, where instead of saying that a per, uh, perceptual state is true or veridical just because it matches some kind of external state of affairs, we could go and say, well, a perceptual state is um, true or veridical if it helps the animal get by with its activities. Um, okay, so two, um, two questions there, um, mm -hmm. I guess, to follow up. Um, uh, one is the you know you mentioned the interests of you you brought in other other organisms you know that that have visual systems or at least uh, color vision um, um, but in in the human case um, uh, when people talk about interest relativity in other contexts it right. usually brings up a lot of a lot of other heavy baggage and I'm of uh, you know personal interests, social interests, political interests, and and all kinds of stuff. And so maybe you could say something about you know do you just mean kind of you know our even if you just actually if you just limit it to evolutionary interests, mm -hmm. you might say well but we are social creatures and that's part of our evolutionary you know maybe not strictly biological maybe but. Uh, you know how why what what sorts of interests are is our color visual system relative to um that's that's one question the other um i guess was well answer that if you could and then and then i i'll follow up with the other one right so i think that we get explanations of why any um 
particular individual human or other animal um, living now has the the kind of color visual system that they do by thinking about um, natural selection and what um, selective pressures were on their ancestors. So, um, and also um, just evolutionary heritage aside from selective pressures, a lot of um, features about visual systems just seem to be highly conserved, you know, throughout the evolution of animals. Um, and they have um, a wide range of different contemporary functions. But anyway, the point is just that we can have evolutionary explanations about the, of the basic um, physiology of color visual systems, like the particular uh, photoreceptor types that um, humans have um, versus what um, turtles have and what different kinds of fish have. But that doesn't give you the whole story about interest relativity because I think um, whatever the evolutionary story, there's still all kinds of open possibilities for how any living creature now might um, choose to use their visual systems. So um, if you take honeybees, well, maybe the kinds of uses they put their visual systems to are fairly stereotypical because their behavioral repertoire is quite fixed. But with humans, well, we go about all kinds of unpredictable activities, um, aesthetic ones, um, communicative ones. So um, I think here, in that case, the interest relativity is quite open. It can include social ones and personal ones. So Okay, so... Um, yeah, I guess the, in the background there is, you know, Benjamin Worf, I suppose, uh, you know, who, who sort of most famously, I guess, um, you know, argued that our perception is relative to our linguistic right. context, right? Um, uh, how, how do you come down on, on Worfianism? Uh, I, I see that as a question to be answered by empirical investigation so the people that actually look at uh the uh look at color language cross-culturally and do the psychophysics to actually see if there's any um real correlations between um different um basic color terms and the kinds of perceptual discriminations people make and if there are these correlations seeing seeing if we can infer um causation there so so i i see that really as an empirical matter so whether you know language impacts um the kinds of discriminations um that people make um though of course um the framework that i'm setting up makes it um you know is completely compatible with those warfian effects um, taking place, it, it seems to invite the idea that they does. Well, moreover, to invite the idea that you know, if different cultures happen to have developed different color terms um, because they're in, they are engaged with particular practices which make use of those color terms, and therefore they see um, the world slightly differently, um, then both of those groups will be correct, if you like, in the way that they're seeing the world relative mm-hmm. to their own interests. Okay. So uh, this is sort of my other follow-up, and mm-hmm. it does feed into the correctness issue. So yeah. on the pragmatic view, um, uh, at least pragmatic theory of truth, um, if I said, you know, the sky is blue, um, uh, to say that that's true is just to say that it's it's useful for me to, to hold that belief. Right. Um so, on your perceptual pragmatist view, is um, w- would you still w- would you still say you know the sky is blue? Would you still say that's true, or would you say that uh, you know it's well, it's, it's useful for me? It's useful given my interests, right? To perceive it that yeah. way. Yeah. So we we can think of the perceptual pragmatism as giving an alternate, well, a, a novel um, analysis of what. Um, is true their means. So instead of thinking on the orthodox view that saying the sky is blue is true um, because 
the sky is blue corresponds to the state of affairs out there in the mind-independent world, um, the perceptual pragmatism is just saying that's true to, to claim that if um, seeing the sky is blue helps you um, go about some kind of business. <laughs> okay. Um, I, yeah. I, I'd like to add here that um, I don't see that it as sort of troublingly relativistic if we we really are just talking about um things like well what honeybees see as opposed to what human beings see so if you have seen those sort of mock-up um flower depictions of how honeybees see the world you see everything looks grainy but there'll be these um high contrast patches in the middle of flowers which um everyone thinks helps the bees find where the pollen and nectar are in flowers and um, we can't see those because we don't have UV-sensitive receptors. Well, the question of, well, who's right? Are we right or are the honeybees right? It, it's not really a troubling kind of relativity. It, it, it seems quite natural to me to say, well, we're both right given what we need to do. Um, if there are sort of, if the question was about honeybee knowledge versus human knowledge and whether humans um, know more than honeybees do, I think um, the relativity would be less compelling. So. Yeah. How about like just between you and me? I mean, what, what grounds our use of the same color term? Yeah. So I think I, well, I assume there's enough convergence in human phys- physiology and sort of human um, cultural um, within within any um, language group or cultural mm-hmm. context, enough training that we all sort of converge upon the same usage. So even uh, people who are uh, so-called colorblind, um, they have two kinds of uh, cones in their retina rather than three, are consistent in how they use color terms with um, trichromatic individuals. So... You know, again, for practical purposes, it's it's useful for us to um, not use colored terms in very idiosyncratic ways. You know, within a human community, and um, and I think that's why you know troubling disagreements don't arise too much. Though, of course, if you if you um, then ask people about these kinds of issues, often you hear it say, oh, my, my husband sees things differently from me. I'll say this is yellow and he'll say it's peach. And there are, there are lots of cases where there are ambiguities in color stimuli and when there are disagreements, but they do seem to be the minority of cases. And in, the, in those kinds of disputes, I, I don't think we can really adjudicate who's seeing things correctly or not. So X is husband or X, it's just, you know, these interesting idiosyncrasies. Hmm. Well, that's sort of, I mean, I'll ask about the phenomenology, right, of, of color in a, in a second, but let's, let me, let me just get to the, the color adverbialism, which is, which is the, the ontological account that you're, that you're basing on, you know, current uh, perceptual science. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so according to that account, and you give a, a nice clear, uh, you know, definition there that colors are properties of perceptual interactions uh, that involve, on the one hand, a perceiver that has the right sorts of visual equipment or spectrally discriminating visual systems, and then a stimulus that has a spectral contrast uh, that can be exploited by that type of visual system. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you explain a bit more about, about color adverbialism? Right. So... Um yeah, there's, there's another kind of definition that I give alongside that, which is just to say um, that colors are ways that objects appear and also ways that I perceive those things. So by by saying that colors are properties of perceptual processes, um, as um, in the long definition that you just read, up, read out, is just a way of saying that colors modify these appearances and perceivings and these are processes rather than um objects so colors um modify 
um, these processes and the way that um, adverbs modify activities. Okay. Um, so let's. Um, uh, well, let me let me go back to the phenomenology issue. Um, okay. uh, say more about adverbialism. Yeah. 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 Well, if if you have more, because that was that was just the definitions. But if you had more questions, well, you what you might do, what might be helpful would be um, so that it's a it's a relational view or a relationism, as you put it, a, a version of relationism, um, and you also contrast it with the view presented by Jonathan Cohen in his you know recent book on color, the the right. the red and the real. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so it might be helpful if you contrasted your color adverbialism with with his, I believe, dispositional account. Yeah. So um, the project um, that Cohen gives us in the red and the real is to defend um, relationist ontologies of color in general, and then he defends a um, more specific um, role functionalist view of color in the latter part of the book, um, in which colors turn out to be um, functional roles of disposing their bearers to appear red, green, etc. So it's relationist because, um, you know, um, colors are the way, are what they are in virtue of how they affect perceivers. But the actual bearers of colors, that what instantiates the colors are um, ordinary objects, um, so red curtains, green leaves, etc. Yeah. Um, um, I call color adverbialism a kind of relationism because um, both objects and perceivers and lights and all those different relata are all um, involved in making color what it is, but it's the process or the interaction um, that goes on in color perception, which is what instantiates the color, on my view, not the stimulus. Okay. Um, so uh, to, to, I was going to raise the, the phenomenology issue is, um, uh, you know, we, I mean, we, have, we, we, we seem to think very strongly uh, that colors look to be, you know, properties of objects. I mean, and, and they're not. Um, but why are, why are, as you put it, um, our, our phenomenology, phenomenology is, is, is an unpersuasive witness, um, which I thought was a very nice, nice phrase. But um, uh, why? I mean, why would we have developed something that gives us, uh, at least on your view, such a, such a wrong view of what the world is like. Yeah. Um, I can't remember the context of the phrase, an unpersuasive witness, <laughs> because what I'd like to say now, um, not knowing the context, is not so much that um, the phenomenology is wrong, but that it's open to various interpretations. So more... Um, an ambiguous or ambivalent witness. Okay. Um, so, so um, if I'm looking at the room around me, yeah, the the redness of those curtains. Um, it's out there in the curtains. Well, it see. Well, I, would I say my phenomenology is telling me that it's out there in the curtains and it. You know, it looks like there's something there that um, belongs to the curtains, or is there just a more general sense of stuff being out there in the world, and maybe not the color specifically um, is out there in a way? I mean, so the the point that I make about the phenomenology is that can we really say that it's Color specifically as one um, as one um, how would you say extractable or one dimension of experience which can be analysed separately from the rest, which is um, presenting itself as out there in the external world, or is it really that there's this complex um, 
perceptual gestalt of which colour is a part. And then we read the phenomenology um, off of that. So I, I think there are so many um, ambiguities and complexities when it comes to this phenomenology that it's too hasty to say, well, colour just looks to be out there in the world. There's, yeah, that seems to assume that colour is just one detachable part of our phenomenology and we can just make inferences about what that is aside from what we're saying about all kinds of other stuff that's going on in our experience. I see. So, so, so the idea that the phenomenology itself, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, tells us that colors are out there is, is actually a reflection of what you called earlier the, the, the coloring in view. And that's, that's actually uh, a somewhat loaded description of the phenomenology. Yeah, that's the, that's the idea. Okay. Um, so let me just, um, let me ask you about in in chapter seven. You uh, you get you discuss the the content of color experiences, um, which is a which is an important topic in philosophy. Um, uh, so you'd contrast two views there. One one which you call a a simple simple resilient representational view of the content, and um, and then you contrast this with the view that uh, that I think you support. Which you called the complex Phrygian mm-hmm. representational right. view. Um, right. So maybe you can give us a little background on on that particular debate, and then and then how you you um, come to your Phrygian or complex Phrygian view. Right. So um, so yeah, the previous chapter sort of presents this ontology of color, which is different from the candidate um, color ontologies that people are talking about and one of the sort of one of the implications of the um um adverbialist color ontology is that um objects um don't instantiate um colors but if you look at um the standard um accounts of the content of color experience which are coming from a philosophy of perception, it's typical to say um, that the content of color experience is to um, attribute um, colors to objects, so to attribute uh, redness to the um, curtains. So if, you're, uh, if you hold the simple resilient representational view of um, the content of color experience, um, I'm looking at these red curtains now, and if you're going to write down what the content is, well, the content would be, oh, those curtains are red. And that's inconsistent with color adverbialism um, because of this this assumption that um, all of the content should just be analyzed in terms of attribution of um, properties to objects. So... um, I say if you're going to be a representationalist about um, perceptual experience, um, in order to make that compatible with color adverbialism, you need to go down this uh, Phrygian route, which says that the content um, is not just about attribution, but there's also modes of presentation. So we can say that um, on this Phrygian view that... um, Color is a mode of presentation of other um, non-chromatic properties of things out there in the world around around us. So, um, um, when I'm looking at those um, red curtains, um, um, there's this mode of presentation which is um, this redness and that's presenting um, the shape and the texture and everything of the curtain to me. Okay. Um, so when we misperceive a color, what's, what is going on there? Or- right. Um, yeah. So, oh, I was just going to say about these different um, representational accounts. Mm-hmm. So I, I sort of sketched them out to just show how um, color adverbialism is um, compatible with um, this Phrygian idea. Um, I also talk 
uh, write a bit about how it would be compatible with some modified version of um, naive realism or what's known as um, relationism in the philosophy of perception when we're not talking about colour as well. So I, I, um, so I think there are different sort of accounts of the content of colour experience and all the what colour experience is that can be um, given like assuming colour adverbialism and you'll notice when we start talking about um, colour experience just using uh, everyday colour language like red and redness then it's um, you just start falling back into turns of phrases which are incompatible with colour adverbialism but I think we'll say something about that a bit later on so that's why it's, it's hard to convey um, the account in an ordinary discussion and not say things that would would appear to be just straightforward and consistent with colour adverbialism, but such is the nature of yeah. language. Right. Well, I mean, you do say something very interesting, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say it in passing, but, you know, towards the end you say this is an issue that, um, that you know, needs to be, needs to be dealt with in a way. And, and that's the idea that, you know, our color concepts in some sense seem to be mistaken or, or you don't, how do you put it? You put it that you're, you're not worried if the actual, you know, ontology, the nature of color really doesn't match with the, uh, with our color concepts or ordinary color concepts. And so if there's this bifurcation between you know, what color really is and how it functions and all that stuff. And then all these color concepts that we've developed in ordinary language or through just, you know, ordinary observation, if if I can say that actually, given what you said before about, you know, the you know the phenomenology. Um so you're not worried about this 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 um the idea that the the concept the concepts we have and maybe the concepts we we ought to have <laughs> i don't know if you want to say that but they're going to be different the scientific picture and the manifest picture uh they're just going to be different and that's you know um do you see them you know just sort of well that's just the way it is or any reconciliation or um how do, how do you see them mapping to each other will will we just be stuck with a, a language that's just you know ill-suited to the world and that's the end of it yeah um so all of that suggests that you know the business of science is um one of sort of describing nature as it is but if you think of um science as um generating concepts you know, for its own peculiar purposes, which might not just be sort of describing nature in a in this godlike way, then some kind of um, relativism actually creeps in here. So I, I I think what I think about this is that concepts are tools, and ordinary color concepts are fine for everyday tasks. But when we're doing um, the science of the mind, and when we're in particular interested in putting the science of the mind on a on a healthy non-Cartesian footing, then those ordinary color concepts don't serve us very well. Um, okay, f- fair enough. <laughs> yeah, and, and it, it, yeah. I'm I'm tempted to appeal to authority here, but at, at least in, in thinking of concepts of t- as tools, I've been um, quite influenced by Mark Wilson. Um, uh-huh. who's in the philosophy department at Pitt, who um, in his book Wandering Significance talks a lot about the concept of red and also concept of hardness and various other concepts that occur in science and how they, they their meanings float around depending on the different practical purposes people put them to. Uh-huh. And, um, yeah, that, that seems right to me. Okay. Um, I think we're, we're actually... Um, starting to run out of time here. Um, let me just ask uh, a generalization question. Oh, I, I didn't ask, answer the question about error or misperception. Uh, that's right, and I would like to hear the answer. Okay, so, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah, one of the um, sticks that P. 
people like to beat relationist views about colour with is to say that it's too much of an anything goes view, that there's no grounds for um, saying ever that we misperceive colour. Um, but I think if you combine relationism with um, the pragmatist account, then there, there are um, paradigmatic instances of... Um, colour misperception which occur and those are ones where our um, business is really being interfered with because we can't um, resolve chromatic information properly so um, I said before about well when you put on mismatched socks in the morning because the light is so dim you'd say that you misperceive them in the morning when you go outside and you look more carefully. Well, that's a, a case where your pragmatic goal, um, like wearing coordinating clothing, whatever the nature of the fundamental nature of color coordination is, is being interfered with because of the poor lighting conditions. And there are other cases where, you know, color constancy fails and um, because the lighting is really strange and tricksy and you fail to re-identify objects. Those those um, are the kinds of instances where you're strongly inclined to say, well, we're misperceiving the colours. And I think we're strongly inclined to say that because of our um, business is being hampered because of those um, strange viewing conditions. I see. I see. Whereas, whereas those more neutral cases like the different backgrounds and one circle looks slightly greyer than the other, it doesn't really matter to us. And I think that's where we can't say that one view is um, a misperception or not. Um, okay, so um, to go back briefly to the, the generalization question, um, uh, so do you, do you think, I mean, so color adverbialism, do you think that um, some sort of a adverbial account is appropriate for, for vision in general? Um, and not just color vision or even for for sensation? Yeah, so um, this is a question I've had before, and I really don't um, know what I think about this um, without having gone through all the details and worked it out to see if there is a coherent view to be had and whether that view has its attractions or not. So I, I think it's one of those things where the devil will be in the detail and um, and it and it, it would naturally it would seem natural to generalize adverbialism to secondary qualities in general. But if you take on board that um, Phrygian view of um, perceptual experience, um, it's natural to stop um, with the secondary qualities and not generalized to primary qualities. So, yeah, there's a there's different you know, um, factors in play there. And without doing all the work, I don't know what I think about that. Okay. Um, uh, well, we're we're almost out of time. So let me let me just ask a fi- as a final question. Um, what is uh, do you have another project in the same uh, ballpark? Uh, following up on this one or are you going to something very different or what's what's next for you um so so the general adverbialism that's not at the top of my to-do list um it seems like a a much bigger project to um take on right now right now i'm sort of involved with maybe sort of tying up some of the loose ends from the book so i um i would like to write more about color constancy and how um, this idea of colours being properties of processes um, might seem to conflict with the idea that colour is stable or has constancy. So to actually give a more detailed account of what the um, mechanisms behind colour constancy are, as we've learned from um, empirical science and how that would mesh with um, colour adverbialism. So that's more at the top of my to-do list. And I also have um, a bunch of other projects on the go which are um, more um, philosophy of neuroscience, so actually looking at computational models of uh, brain function and trying to um, say something about the explanatory practices which um, go on in those fields and how um, how you can take a system which is as 
complex and um, hard to explain as the brain and what kinds of um, inferences different models allow us to make about neural function and how that um, would eventually lead to um, a more integrated um, picture of mind, brain, and behavior. Cool. Uh, Very good. Well, um, uh, we are out of time, so I just wanted to thank you for for, um, giving us your time and and telling us all about your your new book. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Majrita Chirimuta, an assistant professor in the Department of History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Pittsburgh. We've been talking about her new book, Outside Color, Perceptual Science and the Puzzle of Color in Philosophy, which is just out from the MIT Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.